You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank Audible for continuing to support SpyCast. And for the next couple of weeks, you'll hear me ask you to complete a short survey that will help us to keep SpyCast free. It will take less than five minutes of your time and is completely anonymous. What it helps us to do is understand demographic data and listener habits, so you don't end up getting ads for things like Denture Cream or Life Alert, since most of you can successfully get up after a fall. All you need to do is go to podcast.survey. No .coms or anything, just type podcast.survey into your browser and go there. And here's another incentive. The faster we get a good sample set of surveys, the faster I stop talking about this each podcast. So make this happen, people. Podcast.survey. Less than five minutes, completely anonymous and helpful to SpyCast. Now, let's meet our guests. A quick programming note before we begin. I expect many of you are wondering when we are going to weigh in on the WikiLeaks dump of CIA hacking tools. The answer to that is when we know something. Right now, we are dealing in incomplete information. Enough for a press soundbite, and I've even given some of these press soundbites, but we don't know enough to have an in-depth, hour-long podcast with the kind of professionalism and expertise I hope you've come to expect from SpyCast. So I promise we are watching this closely, and we'll pounce on it with a top expert when we feel like we have something tangible to say. So today's podcast is also going to be a bit of a departure from the past. You normally hear me jump right in and introduce the guests, but I thought we needed a bit of a preamble today. So the question some of you might be asking, why do a podcast on climate change now? It's not like climate change is a new issue. Well, here's why. The new director of the EPA is a climate change denier. The new budget proposed by President Trump suggests an almost 20% cut to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which oversees the National Weather Service, and NOAA satellites provide data on climate change that are used by researchers throughout the world. The NOAA cuts target the Office of Ocean and Atmospheric Research, which conducts the bulk of the agency's climate research. That's on top of a proposed reduction to climate research at EPA, including a 40% cut to the Office of Research and Development, which runs many of EPA's major research. The cuts specify work on climate change, air and water quality, and chemical safety. The Trump administration also has proposed 20% staffing reduction at EPA itself. There's also talk of cutting the Coast Guard, foreign aid in the State Department, and the Centers for Disease Control, 
and we'll discuss shortly how that matters within the broader framework of climate change and national security. So that said, let's meet our guest. We're joined today by retired Brigadier General Jerry Galloway and retired Rear Admiral Dave Titley. Retired Brigadier General Jerry Galloway is a Glen L. Martin Institute Professor of Engineering, Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, and an affiliate professor for the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland College Park, where his focus is on water resources policy and management. He's also a visiting scholar at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Institute for Water Resources. He joined the faculty at the University of Maryland following a 38-year career in the U.S. Army, retiring as a Brigadier General, and served eight additional years in the federal government, most of which was associated with water resource management. Professor Galloway is a former dean of the faculty and academic programs at the Industrial College of the Armed Forces and former dean of the academic board, United States Military Academy at West Point, where he was also a professor of geography and the first head of the Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering. He holds a master's degree in engineering from Princeton, a master's in public administration from Penn State, a master's in military art and science from the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and a PhD in geography and water resources from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Retired Rear Admiral Dave Titley is a nationally known expert in the field of climate, the Arctic, and national security, and founding director of the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk at Penn State University. He served as a naval officer for 32 years and rose to the rank of Rear Admiral. Dr. Titley's career includes duties as oceanographer and navigator of the Navy and deputy assistant chief of naval operations for information dominance, which should kind of perk up the ears of some of you out there in listeners' world. While serving at the Pentagon, Dr. Titley initiated and led the U.S. Navy's task force on climate change. And after retiring from the Navy, he served the Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for Operations, the Chief Operating Officer position at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He holds a Bachelor's of Science in Meteorology from Penn State University. From the Naval Postgraduate School, he earned a Master's of Science in Meteorology and Physical Oceanography and a PhD in Meteorology. He was elected a fellow of the American Meteorological Society in 2009 and holds an honorary doctorate from the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Both of our guests come courtesy of the Center for Climate and Security, where both of them are members of the advisory board. So welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Th thanks very much, Vincent, for having us. Yeah, back. it's a pleasure. That was quite an introduction, and I'm glad I got through it <laughs> as I did. You're, you're credentials are certainly uh, impressive, but I want to kind of walk you back to the beginning of your careers uh, in the Army and the Navy, because I doubt, I could be wrong, but I doubt either of you joined the Navy or the Army with the intent of doing climate research one day. So many of us who are awoken to the risks of climate change have our, our origin stories. Mine, I'm from Miami. Uh, I was 16 years old when Hurricane Andrew hit Miami and just completely destroyed everything I knew and grew up understanding. I still remember the pictures of Homestead Air Force Base and the F-16s and pieces scattered across the runway. So that was when I started paying attention to this. I'm wondering from each of you, when you started to kind of hunker down on this as a major national security issue, and what finally convinced you of that? Uh, I, I'm an engineer. I, I graduated from West Point and went into the Corps of Engineers. The first thing you do is run into water and, and earth and the, the way they get together, and rainfall is a very important thing. So from the very beginning, uh, my best friend was the weatherman, the, the meteorologist that we had that could tell us what was going to happen. Uh, if the river was going to rise, we were going to have to bridge it. And so it became incredibly important that engineers understood what was going on around them in, in every respect, the ground and the, in the air, the atmosphere. So I've been with it uh, most of my lifetime. Uh, as I grew into positions of uh, greater responsibility, 
the, it was not that the, the circumstances changed, but the breadth of the responsibility, the physical territory you worried about, the long-term planning. Uh, if you're going to plan an operation, uh, you have to plan it uh, years in advance if it's going to be something that's going to go across continents or you're doing planning for a contingency. Again, you need to think about such things as weather and climate. Uh, I later became a geographer, a military geographer, and uh, that induced me to spend more time on it. In 1982 or three, the Army put out a new field manual called uh, Operations. It was it's put out periodically, and in it, it had the words, "Weather and terrain are the most important things to worry about on the battlefield." Uh, you got to have good guns, but uh, going through a swamp can stop you. Crossing a river can swamp you or stop you, and so you have lots of problems like this. At that point, I knew that we had to know more about what was going to happen in the future. And as it began to shape uh, that climate change was, quote, real, uh, it became more important for the military to become involved in this. So since the mid-'80s and, and up to the present time, I've tried to follow what's going on, tried to anticipate what would be imaginable for the consequences of climate change on the military, and then put that to work not only in my military role as a military advisor to different organizations, but more than that, uh, to the people that I work with in the world's water resource uh, environment, because it's going to hit them as well. Mm -hmm. The military and the civilian world are interlocked, right. and we have to worry about that. Admiral Titley? Well, well, thanks. Well, relative to uh, Jerry, I guess I'm a, I'm a Johnny-come-lately to, uh, to this. So as you, as you mentioned in my biography, I'm a, I'm a meteorologist by training. I, I consider myself a recovering weather forecaster. And so I've done weather forecasting for about 40 years, give or take, now. Uh, and one of the things you learn, or a few things you learn, well, one is grow a thick skin, but that's not really the, <laughs> uh, what we're going to talk about here today. But you learn that there's tremendous daily and weekly variability in the weather. Uh, you also learn that for weather models, after three, four, five, six days, uh, they're barely worth being used as toilet paper, by and large. Every once in a while, they'll be right. but but usually they're not. Mm -hmm. uh, so in fact, as we're taping this today, everybody's getting excited about maybe there's gonna be a big East Coast snowstorm, but maybe there's not. Right. That's four days out, nobody really knows. So really, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to climate. My job was in, in the sense of big long-term right. changes. Uh, as Jerry mentioned, you absolutely, I mean, one of your best things that you had was sort of this atlas of climate uh, climate records and whenever you were going to go and do an operation or contingency plan for really anywhere in the world you know that was the first thing you got out uh, and we've used that and we've developed better ways of doing this especially when you're working in a place where maybe the other person doesn't want to give you his long-term weather records it's I'm sure your listeners can imagine yeah. places like that so we've done that for decades, but really what got uh, me into really working the, the man-made climate change and its impacts was when the uh, chief of naval operations, a guy named Admiral Gary Ruffhead, asked me about a decade ago now, uh, what's going on in the Arctic? Uh, because about 2007 was when we had the first really big noticeable loss of the amount of sea ice. and. There were certainly some people telling the chief of naval operations, hey, this is like drop everything, this is a huge deal, deal with it now. There were a lot of people who said, boss, it's noise, don't worry about it. Right. So I had become the head of the Navy's operational weather and ocean and ultimately 
prediction programs and ultimately the oceanographer. And basically he said, hey, Titley, go figure this out and tell me what we should do. So the, the CNO asked me a very, very open question. He didn't say this is real, now deal with it. He didn't say this is nonsense, now make it go away. He asked, he asked an open question. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I did a bunch of research and saw that, uh, yes, it is real, uh, and yes, uh, climate models can in fact tell you a lot in 20, 30, 50 years from now, where the weather forecast can't even get 15 days, and right. if you're interested, we could talk about that later on. Well, I think that, let me, sorry to interrupt, I think sure. that a lot of people confuse weather and sure. climate. I mean. Everything from Jen Inhofe, the senator from yeah. Oklahoma, on that floor of Congress with a, hey, it's a snowball, it means climate change not yeah. happening, and, and realize that, yeah, it might be snowing outside, but it's February yeah. or whatever. I, I, I tell people, yeah, you, you plan for climate, but you live in weather. Uh, there's tremendous day-to-day -day variability. And as far as everybody can tell, there will continue to be tremendous day-to-day -day variability, week-to-week. -week. Uh, that's not going to go away. What is happening is those averages, either averaged over space or averaged over time, are changing. And they're really, in some places, especially in the higher latitudes, they're changing very, very rapidly. Uh, I posted something on my Twitter account about a month ago that really shows that the volume of Arctic sea ice, and not only the extent, but how thick it mm -hmm. is, the volume of Arctic sea ice now at the end of the winter is about the same as what the volume had used to be at the end of a summer 30 years ago. It was, I, mean, I just I know a little bit about this, but maybe you can, it, it goes up and down depending on what, what season it is, where of course. in the summer it, a lot of it melts and in the winter it builds back up. The fear now is that at the end of a winter it hasn't come close to building back up to what it used to. Yeah, the, exactly. So the ice is fundamentally different now than it was even, let's say, when I was a captain or let's say when, uh, when, when General Galloway like, was a colonel. It's a fundamentally different environment up there. Uh, from a military perspective, I'm not going to say if that's bad or good, but I am going to say it's very different. And, you know, Fundamentally, for the United States, we like to fight the away game, right? We fight the away game, and we want a home field advantage. We do not want to fight at home. So if you're going to fight the home, that away game, as, as General Galloway said, you better understand the terrain, you better understand the weather, and for planning, you better understand the climate. So that Arctic is fundamentally different now. That means, without saying if that's good or bad, and, and frankly, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't really care that much about the polar bears, yeah. uh, but I do care about the changes in human activity. I do care about changes in trade routes. I care about the ability to have mass tourism up there with a whole lot of people, uh, fishing uh, changes. You have uh, resource extraction. People think of oil and gas, but there's right. a lot of minerals up there. All of these things happen. You have a lot of indigenous, millions of indigenous people who live up there. How does this act? Why do I care? Because if you get massive social unrest, that can, if not properly managed, turn into a stability issue. Well, and, it, and it, this is not an area where most people have claimed, or at least no one's really respected the claims of different countries. But this is an area in the Arctic where Russia, Canada, the United States, Denmark, a lot of these countries lay claim and and, and 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 let me ask you general galloway as the geologist underneath all of that there are really important natural resources that could be turning that area into another middle east in many respects of kind of this 
vying for resources well, there. Well, certainly we don't know everything about the Arctic that we'd like to know. That's one of the things. And, and we can see many things are happening. And, and uh, to me, the, the most interesting part came when uh, probably a decade ago, the natives who lived in a uh, place called Shishmaref, had petitioned the government to help them, help us stabilize. And so they went up there and they built things on the waterfront and, and the chief was happy. One of my students got involved in a conversation with him and he told him all how they had great strength. They just last year gave up, hmm. said it's just, we, it, we cannot live with this. We can sense now with uh, our, our own native knowledge that this is something that we've not seen before, that our, it may have happened way back when, but it's something we can't handle. And so we'd better be prepared to deal with this sort of situation. So it's the unknown, the uncertainties right. that they face. And they, they realize that you can't just keep going like you're going now. You better make plans for the future. And that's what they're doing. And, and that affects all the things that Admiral Titley just spoke about. I mean, th this, this is really, I mean, what, what Jerry brought up is, is really the key point. We have had for not only hundreds of years, but if you think about it, really for human civilization, last eight or 10,000 years, basically climate stability. Uh, for all intents and purposes, it's being pretty stable. The seas have pretty much stayed where they were. So if you built a port city, you didn't have right. to move it. It either didn't flood or you didn't find yourself 50 kilometers away from the ocean in a century. Uh, if you could grow a crop, it more or less grew. If you were in Shishmaref, you knew where the ocean was going to come up, how the ice was going to protect your village in most of the seasons. It was stable. I'm not saying it was great. Uh, unless you live in Hawaii or San Diego, I'm not sure your climate's great. I live in central Pennsylvania. It's cloudy for five <laughs> months of the year. But we knew what it was going to be. And now it's changing, and it's changing fast. So really from a military perspective, even you don't even have to get into why. You know, I, I tell people, you know, look, we don't have to talk about that. Oh, by the way, but if you tell me it's a cycle, tell me when the cycle's going to end. Because in the 90s, he said it was going to end in the early 2000s. And in the early 2000s, you told me by 2010, we'd be getting colder. And by in 2010, you told me, oh, 2014, we're topping out and right. it's getting colder. It ain't happened yeah. so far. So let's say that, you know, simplest caveman math, it's a straight line. Right. It's probably more than a straight line. Probably exponential Cave, growth. But it's right. better than yeah. assuming that it was like right. it was in the 40s and 50s. So everything changes. Uh, it changes our operating environment. It changes threats uh, to our own military infrastructure, not just the coast, but coast mm -hmm. is a big part of it. And then finally, because these stressors are much more than just a military thing, it puts a lot of stresses on places that are already, right. you know, not in great shape. Now, they're not in great shape either through no fault of their own or, frankly, they have, I guess a technical term would be crappy governments. Uh, and their government does not take care of their people. Uh, and now you take like a, a sledgehammer, a climate sledgehammer, and you go from a not great situation to a catastrophic situation, and guess who gets involved? The United States military. Well, and I think that, you know, people look at things like Hurricane Katrina, right, where it was handled very badly by a very good government in the United States. I mean, we have the resources to do just about any kind of federal emergency relief that we want to, and it still was a situation that caused many, many deaths and billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure damage. I can imagine something like that happening to a developing country with a government that was not particularly stable. You may have a failed state somewhere or worse. 
Uh, and that would be something, like you said, where we would probably get involved yeah. one way or the other. It, it's, it's Russian roulette. It doesn't mean mm. that every typhoon with every storm surge is going to like create chaos. But if you keep having you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that then have nothing, let's say a lot of them are young males, unattached. We know that's already uh, you know, kind of one of the things you look for. Let's say their families have absolutely nothing and they are desperate. Uh, let's say the government is ineffective either because they're just ineffective or they're evil. Uh, this is the breeding ground for extremist groups. This is the breeding ground for somebody who says, I will feed your family. I will make sure you don't starve. Your wife doesn't die of thirst. Join my group. Right. And I would challenge as, you know, I usually talk to a lot of, you know, pretty educated, pretty frankly comfortable groups and says, you know, put yourself in that position. Would you just, would you say no, or would you think about it? I'll bet most of us would think about it. I mean, people have talked about climate change not as something that's gonna be a causal factor in war, but they've used terms like an accelerant of instability or a threat multiplier that makes already existing threats much worse. And let me ask you, General Galloway, as, as a geologist. Geographer. Yeah, geographer, geographer, sorry, geographer. <laughs> that's even better, that's exactly the question I wanted to ask you. As a geographer, when you're looking at things like droughts in certain areas within like Africa or the Middle East, when you're looking at things like loss of livelihood and famine and the resulting mass migration possibilities. I mean, that to me, we're already seeing how migration, whether it's refugees or people looking for resources somewhere else, has caused conflict other places. If there are whole areas of, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa that have to find somewhere new to live, that seems like it's going to almost guarantee to create wartime situations. Well, the interesting part is that the absence of water, uh, we haven't had water wars. We've had water tensions. Uh, only on rarest occasions do you go to fight about it because everybody recognizes they have somewhat of the same problem. Now, the OECD came out with a report that said, we do not have an, uh, an international water crisis. We have a water management crisis. We need to learn. Uh, Look what California did. We need to learn that you can take steps, you can modify it, but it goes back to the issue, is the government ready to deal with right. it? And in, in developing countries, it's a real problem. And it can be the problem of the unrest among the, the local population. In India, where you have a drought, uh, where do you get the water? Uh, water is, is sold to the people at a high price. Uh, there aren't reservoirs where they should be. Uh, people don't want to build dams in many cases. So all of those things have to be taken into account. And you can go to some country where we have a lot of supplies. Take Bangkok in 2011 when we had the massive floods there. And the areas north of that uh, were factories that produced things for our electronics, for our automobiles, all of these sorts of things, including the military supplies. So if the supply chain is cut there, it is their problem, but we pay the, the ultimate price mm -hmm. if we can't get what we need. So we have to be cognizant of everything that's going on, and we have to help them plan. Uh, that's the issue. It is a threat multiplier. It, it is a catalyst for, for some sort of unrest. Uh, it can create the problems. And in many cases, the, the water people will tell you that if we'd known that, if, and we do knew, knew some of these things were going to happen, if we'd known in advance to act, we would have. Why didn't we uh, accept that? People didn't want to accept that climate change had anything to do with mm -hmm. such things. Uh, whether the loss of a wheat crop in Russia or a, a wheat crop in some other country is going to cause instability, oh, don't, don't worry about it, it'll start raining again. We have to be aware of that, and that's where 
the climate predictors and the people that are looking ahead say, well, one of the possible alternatives in the future is we're going to have a longer drought. The drought's going to be longer. In my world of too much water, uh, we already are seeing an increase in the level of flooding. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, a challenge, whether you're conducting a military operation or in 1993 when the Mississippi River was up, we cut transcontinental traffic on railroads. Uh, we did all sorts of other things, all of which have a national security implication. Right. So drought, uh, it, drought can be managed, uh, but we have to do the right things. But you talk about managing, California is a great example of this. They struggled to manage that drought and they're with the top top 15 economy in the world <coughs> sorry they were able to pull that off because of the resources they had but i can't imagine a country in south asia or africa or, or a poorer country syria. in latin america I mean, syria, syria yeah, middle here. east the poster child yeah being able to do that without either outside help or if outside help doesn't come without fighting one another over scarce water resources and, and and you know i mean you look at syria and you know you had assad back in what the 70s say i'm going to be self-sufficient in wheat now it would be great if assad's advisor said hey boss you know we're in the eastern mediterranean it's kind of a dry place to begin with but you know they're working for assad so what do they say boss you are a smart powerful and <laughs> handsome person and we will work on that right now and they did and they were they they were self-sufficient but you know what they did and, and the general's gonna like kick me if I screw this up, but they basically drained their aquifers and they drained their rivers. Right. So it's like, you know, I have the shiny new 50 foot RV in the driveway, but my checking account's maxed out. And if one bad thing right. happens, I'm screwed. And that's, you know, what happened. And some of those bad things were climate. Honestly, a lot of those bad things had nothing to do with climate, like the Iraq war. Right. Uh, so, but you're, it's the opposite of resilience. You know, you are, you are betting on that roulette wheel coming up in double zeros or you're screwed. And it didn't. No. And the whole place fell apart catastrophically. And, and you know, I mean, this, this, this chapter has not been fully written, but we have U.S. troops today in harm's right. way uh, because of the collapse in Syria, one of the components of which is absolutely related to climate. I told you last week about our newest sponsor, Audible. Audible.com is the premier provider of digital audiobooks. It has over 180,000 titles to choose from in every genre. Thrillers, business, romance, comedy, sci-fi, spy books, and more. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices for listening anytime, anywhere. Now, for us, the listeners of SpyCast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. And I've told you before, we don't just accept anyone as a sponsor here at SpyCast. No denture cream, no life alert. And there have been plenty of companies we've turned away. I want to be sure it's right for those who we use as a podcast. And more importantly, that it's something you as a listener might care about. So I checked out the book avail books available on Audible, and they have tons of spy-related books. I gave you a partial list last week. Everything from Michael Hayden to Clint Emerson to Malcolm Nance to John Le Carre. It's likely if you heard it here on SpyCast, you can find it there. You also have things like The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, The Pleasure of Finding Things Out by Richard Feynman, A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order by Richard Haas, and Richard III by Shakespeare. Clearly, if there's a book by or about a man named Richard, it's on Audible. So to get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com spy. That's audibletrial.com spy. 
Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. One last time, that is audibletrial.com slash spy. I want to ask you, while, while we're talking to you, I want to ask you about things like food production. And we can kind of talk a little bit about this on both sides, but specifically dealing with things like food production from the sea. Because warming seas has been now, we've seen a lot of differences in sea life migration. So where for thousands of years, certain uh, villages have been counting on having certain fish and certain type of sea life for their economy, for their livelihood. All of a sudden, there are huge dead zones in the sea where no animal life can live, forcing fishers to different areas. This could certainly cause tensions in places like the South China Sea or between China and Japan. And then water acidity seems to be threatening things like shellfish. Um, something I, I saw, the water is 40% more acidic than it used to be. So coral reefs, again, my hometown of South Florida counts on the coral reefs to refish and all that economy down there. Australia and other places counting on that. This seems to be essentially a disaster waiting to happen in, in the sea, but also yeah. where you're having droughts and other things on the land. Food production is kind of like that basic necessity that drives everything. So, so this is one of the lesser talked about components to climate change. And, and the what you mentioned, the ocean acidification is sometimes talked about as the silent evil twin of climate change. Uh, so as we're putting all these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the good news is they're not all staying in the atmosphere, because if it was, it'd be even hotter. The bad news is it's the ocean is where they're going. And there's a series of chemical reactions that have been understood for about 200 years uh, that bottom line turns the ocean somewhat more acidic. Now this does not mean when you go to the Jersey Shore, you stick your finger in and it's like the Saturday morning cartoon right. and it's just a bone. It's not, it's not that degree, but it is certainly impacts ecosystems that you know for hundreds of thousands of years have had a pretty stable chemical ocean and they've evolved to that again it's not good it's not bad it's just what it was and now we're changing it we've changed it more in arguably a century than it's changed in millennia some species will probably do okay others will not and another dirty little secret is even today marine oceanographers do not really understand the full food webs in the ocean we do understand that we feed somewhere between one and two billion people with their primary source of protein. So you cut that. And that's like people who thought about it, that's what they thought about. What your audience might be interested in is there's a real second security aspect to this that not too many people talk about. You mentioned the islands, mm -hmm. uh, lots of islands in the tropics. Uh, and their economic resource is that what we call exclusive economic zone. You know, you basically control the fishing and the fishing rights and the, the, the economic value within 200 nautical miles of your island. You may not have too much except coconuts and a couple beaches, but you got that, you can keep everybody fed, it's enough to run your economy. Well now, and especially in places where it's warm, the, as the ocean warms, the species tend to go find places where they used to live, so there's less economic value. It's acidifying. All of a sudden, how much use is that EEZ, that exclusive economic zone? Well now imagine you're a country that doesn't really like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea as it's written. You can probably, if you have an IQ over 75, start thinking of how to get allies to say, look, we can, you know, that thing is so 1970s. And who was it written by? U.S. maritime lawyers. Why? 
to encode U.S. interest, which is the ultimate irony that we have not acceded to this thing. So now you can start possibly seeing a scenario, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you can see a scenario in which uh, other countries who maybe don't like the law of the sea for a lot of different reasons uh, would start trying to find allies. And the fact that the United States has not acceded to that doesn't guarantee us that we get a seat at the table if this thing gets revised. Mm -hmm. uh, not too many people have sort of put those pieces together, but that is being forced in part by climate, or climate could be, again, an accelerant right. uh, to, to that logic train. So that's a, that's a risk that it would really make me happier if I had confidence that the State Department was thinking about, <laughs> uh, and the U.S. Senate was thinking right. about, but I am, uh, I'm not sure that that's right. the case. And, and to feed into the ocean, you have all our rivers. Right. You have the Himalayan glaciers. Uh, all of these things are being affected. Uh, and the species, I, I'm working in the Mekong, and the Mekong is a, is a terribly challenging area because you're talking about countries that are trying to get back on their feet. They want to build dams. Dams interrupt the flow of sediments. Sediments carry nutrients. Uh, it's changing the fishing uh, lifestyle there. Uh, how is this all going to work out? Well, people are using late 19th and 20th century approaches. Build a dam, fill it with water, and move ahead. Uh, generate electric power, great thing to do, but we're, we've got to think farther out in advance when we really look at what can happen with climate change. And, and so how will we handle that? Uh, that's going to be the challenge. In these big South uh, Asian countries, India, uh, Bangladesh, where the populations are huge, are so reliant on that interface uh, between the rivers and the, the estuaries and the ocean itself. And again, when you look at, uh, we, we did a study once on the St. Lawrence River that uh, came out and said if you reduce the flow out of the St. Lawrence, you felt the effect in the, in the sea life in the Gulf of Maine all the way around because you have to have this mix of fresh and right. seawater to make things work. Again, cut it back and you have a problem. What are the impacts? Again, unrest, uh, all of the sorts of things we see with the other uh, stressors. Well, I, mean, I think of countries like Indonesia, which you know right now is doing okay, but you know it's the world's largest Muslim population. You know, almost 90% of its population is, is not radicalized. Most of it's not radicalized. But, you know, if they got hit by a massive Katrina-like hurricane or if they got... It was called the Christmas uh, Boxing Day Tsunami. And you know what that did, right? Yeah. It, it actually quashed the, uh, the unrest. Uh, I mean, Aceh got hammered. So there was a direct impact. It's, it's hard to be a rebel if you're dead. Right. Uh, but I would argue that what was even more effective was the fact that the United States responded immediately and forcefully uh, with our military, uh, started with Navy, but all branches. We brought our allies in, uh, and the Indonesians really, really appreciated it. And there was another large country in that region that was not able to or did not respond. That was also noted. Uh, so it's not that I wish large-scale disasters on anyone. Uh, you mentioned Katrina. My house was five miles away from landfall on Katrina, so I, I understand no. what a 30-foot uh, wall of water coming up your street does. But uh, the fact that the U.S. policy was, and hopefully is, to respond forcefully to these in addition to, I think, being really only you know defendable from a moral standpoint, right. just simply helping people, 
uh, there are tremendous geopolitical benefits to demonstrate that the United States can do that. Uh, and I, I certainly hope that that will continue to be our policy. I mean, is it, is it essential for us to try to predict where some of that may happen so that we can respond immediately? I mean, are we looking 20, 30 years down the road and saying, you know, the likelihood is India or Pakistan or someone's going to have a major climate-based event that we need to react to? It's a little bit like predicting who's going to win the lottery. Right. But what you can do is, is you start seeing these risks changing. Uh, and a lot of different researchers from a lot of fields, you know, more or less come to a similar conclusion that places that are already not that stable today are the ones most at risk. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of political, there's some technical reasons for that. So, you know, if I was back in the Pentagon, thank God I'm not, but if I was, I would be looking at how do we maintain robust capability? How do we maintain robust presence? How do we maintain robust networks of allies and friends? Uh, so that when that disaster strikes, not if, but when, whether it's Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, India, Burma, you name it, we're ready mm -hmm. and, we can, and we can respond effectively rather than, hey, we bet everything on country X and it turned out to be country Z and now we're screwed. That's, that's not how you want to do it. Right. Yeah, and the other half of that equation really is uh, diplomacy and, and the mill-to-mill the -mill relationships we have and the science-to-science -science relationships. If you can help them figure out, if, if we don't cut off uh, those sorts of exchanges, if we let our experts go and talk to them about how you might deal with this particular issue. Take the Indus River in uh, Pakistan and India. That's a source of friction between those two countries right now. And if we can be part of that, if we can help them, if they trust us and they see that we're there to help them if something bad happens, but to, to get them ready to be resilient when the, the big problem occurs, whether it's the flood as they had before that wiped out large areas, or it could be anything, some sort of a seismic event that could cause even more problems. And we've got our own. And when we share with them the, the idea of Cascadia, the, the collapse on the Pacific coast, uh, that, that could be the worst thing we've ever seen. Well, well they ought to know about that. Right. And, and they know that we're learning from that, and, and Japan certainly faces the same sorts of things. You, brought mean, up, sorry. you know, just really at this table here between Jerry and I, I mean, we've got about 70 years of combined military service. So, I mean, this is, you know, we, we neither of us have Birkenstocks on or ponytails <laughs> or anything like that. We absolutely understand, and the fact that by, by somehow we both ended up as general or flag officers, I mean, we we kind of get hard power right. and, and we're supportive of hard power. But it would be a huge mistake, at least in my opinion, I'm not gonna speak for General Galloway, but in my opinion, if we do not remember that soft power is in many, many, in diplomatic, in these cooperations and cooperative ventures that, that Jerry talked about, uh, that really forms the relationships. You know, sometimes you need the pointy, hard tip of the spear, right. and we do that, and we can do that very well. But that's only one component of power, and uh, if that's all you have, then, you know, it's the old cliche of hammers and nails. Right. Uh, the soft power builds the relationships. Uh, it frankly maintains the peace and keeps stability. Well, a lot of times we're talking reactively about going in and helping somebody after they've already had a natural disaster. But I talked in the intro, the reason I brought up cutting funds USAID into the State Department is there's a proactive way to potentially prevent these 
climate events from becoming disasters. Right. And that's what I think you can certainly speak to is building up infrastructure in some of these places that don't have infrastructure. And keeping people out of places where they shouldn't be. Right. You know, it's amazing. Uh, a, a decade or so back, Bangladesh had a, a typhoon come through and it killed 200,000 people. Now they've gone to learn the soft skills that uh, help people evacuate, teach people why. They learned, for example, that uh, women don't react to uh, men walking to the village yelling, move, move, move. But if women come through that have been trained, they believe them. Uh, how do you take care of all the needs, the, the environmental needs of the people? Where do they sleep? How do they eat? All of those things, once you start talking to them about it, and we have a good relationship, and it appears not only in the diplomacy that we see, but in the ability of their people to come to our schools, the, the experts that come to here and are on the faculty in our universities, our students in our universities, and in the military colleges and schools, when you have both the civil and the military working together. That, that's terribly important. The when I was the, uh, the dean of one of the colleges at the National Defense University, we got a call from the White House said, tell us uh, what the strategy the students are, are, are planning on. What, where are their emphasis? And uh, I said, well, you really want to know? They said, yes. I said, well, the first is diplomacy. <laughs> we, want, we want to make sure that we put a stop to the war before it starts. <laughs> right. And then we want the national power to be there. Oh, by the way, we also want education. We want health and those sorts of things. But the, the focus is you've got to think through the whole process and do those things that make a difference, whether it's USAID or the State Department, right. we, need to, we need to do something about it. And there are things we can do. And I think that one of the issues with climate change is we're gonna see a different physical environment. So where we relied on hard structures before, we ought to be looking at uh, green infrastructure, also a word that, that gets you in trouble in certain places. <laughs> but green infrastructure does make a difference. Mangroves protect the shoreline and, and do a better job than than all sorts of rubble in many cases. There are times when you need to build dams, there are times when you need breakwaters, but you use nature when you can. And we are teaching them that, and they are learning from that. And again, for us, uh, from the military standpoint, when we're over there learning and we're watching how sea level is rising and how you're dealing with the, the challenges, think back to World War II. Uh, my father was in the uh, amphibian engineers and landed troops on all the beaches in New Guinea up through the Philippines and, and was ready to go into Japan. Everything's changed. Yeah. You can get the old maps and they're not going to be the same way. And so we've got to know that. And, and they were just talking the other day about uh, we have so little information about many parts of the world. We need that relationship as climate changes and it forces the changes in the topography. We need to know something about that and have the friendships. So just two things, one to complete Jerry's story about the uh, Bangladesh. So yeah, they had this type or it's basically a hurricane. We would call it a hurricane, mm -hmm. same thing. It goes in, kills hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, they do the things that General Galloway just talked about. About three years ago, there was another huge storm and the Twitter lit up, says, oh my God, we're gonna have another 100,000 people killed. It was about 14, hmm. 14. We can't go through a storm in the U.S. We have 14 stupid surfers out right. there. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. When you think of a country with the resources or lack of resources of Bangladesh, massive vulnerabilities. But they, through lots of stuff that, that General Galloway went through, and, and probably a lot more, were able to have, I mean, yeah, still 14 is, is, is bad, but compared to 200,000, right. it's incredible what they've done. Uh, Second point, really, I mean, if, you're, if your listeners remember 
nothing else <laughs> out of this. It's the fact that our climate is changing now, and it's going to change for probably the duration of everyone's lifetime who's listening to this today. Even if we somehow magically, and this is not going to happen, but magically snapped our fingers and we went to basically zero greenhouse gas emissions, the Earth would take about another three decades to stable out. Think of like right now, you know, you got your F-350 pickup truck, you know, with that great diesel engine, but it's kind of slow on picking up. Well, we got the, we've got the uh, gas pedal on the floor, but we're still in like kind of a high gear, right. and it's getting going. So the the earth is frankly out of balance what that means in practical terms is we're going to keep changing uh the seas are likely going to rise for hundreds of years again even if we stop so uh we need to have a mindset that the new normal is not like it used to be in the 20th century the new normal is we are going to change decade by decade by decade and those who understand that and can kind of shoot ahead of that rabbit are going to be the ones who prosper. And we want our military, of course, to be number one. So we better figure this out and just incorporate that. That's just the way it's going to be, whether you're an admiral or a general or a second lieutenant or a private or a seaman. That's what your life is going to be. It is going to be one of change. And that is going to be the constant. I'm, I'm not, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just imagine that it gets hotter, and it's going to get hotter, and we've seen that. Think back to the Mr. Roberts uh, movie, where they're all sitting on this ship, and they're hot, sweating, and it's, it's terrible. At some point, you can't operate. Right. The same thing happens in our cities, where it, you see hundreds, if not thousands of people die during the heat wave. We've got to be looking ahead and recognize what uh, Dave just said, that that we have to prepare for something that no matter what we do now to, to contain greenhouse gases is probably going to occur. And are we ready on our military bases if we thought through the training, if we thought through the changes in uniforms you need? Right. Uh, what is it going to be? And so it takes a lot of thinking. And when somebody says, don't worry about it, uh, they're really not <laughs> thinking of what national yeah. security yeah. really means and how far it yeah. reaches into the fabric of society. Well, I was a tanker in the Army, so you oh, don't have yeah. to tell me about things getting <laughs> hot. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it's a little warm there. The, the submariners have a, have a saying. It's the, the stupid shall be punished. So <laughs> I, would, I would plea that it's like, let's not be stupid. Right. Because if we are on this, and just not by, I mean, you don't even have to be like sort of the throwing the snowballs around and, and kind of denying, but just by ignoring this, we put ourselves at a competitive disadvantage to every other military who does not ignore this. Well, 50% um, of Americans live within 50 miles of the coast. It's not like something that we can just kind of hunker down in Nebraska and wait it all out. Sell I mean, now. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I'm thinking we're, we're in Washington, D.C. We're just down the road, give or take, from the largest naval base in the world in Norfolk. Right. Uh, that's going to be completely underwater, perhaps, in a couple of decades. Well, not in a couple <coughs> of decades. No. Uh, but, you know, arguably in a century, okay. they could be in real trouble. Uh, so this is, but, but things like in a couple of decades, if you get a bad storm, what the headlines will say is unprecedented flooding. We've never seen anything like right. it. And if you weren't anticipating that, then 
you, you can basically have a mission kill. You can basically put that base out of operation for a long time. Well, Homestead, Homestead Air Force Base and, yeah, and never, and came, back. never came, came back. I mean, you look at, yeah. I'm looking at Florida and things like, you know, you've got McDill Air Force Base and CENTCOM in Tampa, which is right on the coast. You've got Southcom in Miami, which takes care of all of Latin America. Miami is going to get, you know, either if not hammered by another major hurricane is going to be underwater in a couple of decades. Um, you know, Pensacola Naval Air Station closed after what Ivan or one of the hurricanes yeah, it and, yeah. and it stayed closed for a year, I believe. I mean, these are major military bases that are key to running our operations overseas that are just going to get more vulnerable to potential climate issues. Well, as the uh, president looks at infrastructure, which he's doing right now, and his task forces are going out and looking at the big projects, one of the things that we're looking at is uh, how does climate change impact uh, highways? And, and from the national security standpoint, last fall, we had the, the big rainfall events on the East Coast here. And I-95 was shut down near Lumberton, North Carolina, uh, maybe a 30-mile stretch for four, five, six days. Well, when you talk to some people in the 82nd Airborne and they need to move around and get to locations, the roads they always had used were blocked. Yeah. And so, yes, you can find another way around, but oh, by the way, then everybody in the civilian world is on those same roads and their little back uh, roads and you can't move what you want. And so we better start thinking, and we are, fortunately, I think in most cases, about how we're going to deal with the, the increasing number of these quote, thousand-year events that occur all too frequently. Right. And so, again, it's planning ahead for what you can deal with, looking at what it might be, and then coming up with the solutions. The, the reason we're having so many thousand-year events is because they're not thousand-year events right. anymore. Uh, there was a study just put out a couple of days ago about this very, very warm February. And the bottom line, I won't bore your listeners with all the technical details, but the bottom line basically says that for today's climate, our February was about a one in 15 year occurrence. Had we had that February back in, let's say the 1980s, it would have been about a one in 80 year occurrence. And in the 1950s, it would have been about a one in 160 year occurrence. But for today, that was about a, yeah, a one in, it's, it's like rolling snake eyes. Right. You know, it, it happens. Uh, so, so that's the kind of, uh, you know, kind of weather that we're just going to see. And pretty soon, in a few decades, that February will be a normal February. That's, that'll be normal. And that may sound great for people who are living in Virginia and other places, but it has massively detrimental impacts for places like the Arctic and for uh, areas of the world that need to be a little colder. And we're going to see as we go into a cold spell as we're recording this, how much uh, crop damage you have because when you start getting the buds out and then you get a late cold shot like we're getting it right now, uh, it depends very much on the exact crop and, and a, you know, a, the specifics, but it's put a lot of agriculture on the East Coast in a highly vulnerable position and, and hopefully it, it won't be too bad, but you know, as both Jerry and I know that hope is really a strategy. Yeah. Let me ask about disease, because I think disease is something that people don't think a lot about when they're thinking about climate change. Warmer climates, I mean, again, I'm from a, the tropics where mosquitoes are basically the size of dogs and they can kind of pick you up and walk away. You know, when you have 
mosquito-borne diseases, when you have tropical diseases that now are being able to expand into areas that they had never seen them before, where there is not kind of a natural understanding of these, when you have tree-borne diseases and tr insects that normally aren't in certain areas of the country. I know this doesn't sound like an intelligence conversation, but it certainly is because you're losing, you know, tens of thousands of acres of trees that stop further climate change from happening. You're getting diseases in areas that you would not expect them to happen. And I'd said before, we're slashing the budget of the CDC. And certainly disease can be a national security concern that can be exacerbated by climate change. Well, that's certainly the case. And, and we've seen that already in, in many places where you see these changes. The crop is not what it used to be. Uh, we're getting uh, less of a yield. That's a problem. Uh, that's an economic problem. It's, it's a resettlement problem. People leave the land and go in the, uh, the, not as much in this country, but overseas, where you have this change. It's migration to the cities. How are we going to live in the cities? And what are we going to do about that? That is exacerbated by the disease and the health issues that come about because of this. And so just heat itself, it, the increase in the temperatures on, on an average basis are going to make a big difference in the way we operate. And so people need to be thinking about that. Uh, again, it's not just the military. In, in the United States, around every military base is a civilian community, mm -hmm. and they're intertwined today. Uh, somebody did a report one time and said, what we ought to do is fence off the military and, and, and keep everybody else out. Well, you can't do that because we work off post. We, uh, the people that are off post come on post and, and do things. Uh, we're married to people in the local community. And as we deal with our problems, whether it be at Fort Riley or Fort Hood or at Camp Lejeune, we've got to take care of the community that's with us. And that's a surprisingly large part of the nation's population mm -hmm. that is in or near or affected by those. So again, there are so many little components of this national security that are tied back to what's happening right now. So I want to ask a final question thinking about solutions, and I'm not going to ask us to come up with any. But what, one thing that worries me, I do read about ways of reversing this, whether it's littering the atmosphere with small particles to try to reflect you know, heat back, or uh, turning Siberia into a big moss field. When in, something about regenerating woolly mammoths. I, don't, I saw something in the Atlantic about it. it. It was interesting. But are are we? Do we run the risk of hoping that technology will save us from technology that's caused of, of this problem? Yeah. So I, I had the pleasure of being on the National Academy of Science committee that actually studied this issue. Uh, it was chaired by uh, Dr. Marsha McNutt, who's now the president of the of the National Academies. Uh, and we basically, you know, when I ever try to describe what we call climate intervention or some people call geoengineering is this is the large scale intentional modification of climate by man to undo the unintentional large scale uh, <laughs> modification of climate by man to which I usually say what could possibly go wrong right. with that. Uh, there are two classes of climate intervention. Uh, and I sort of think of them is let's say if we have a lot of trash and it's kind of stinking up the place. One solution is you take the trash out. The other solution is you spray a bunch of perfume over the trash. So the take the trash out is sometimes called carbon capture and sequestration. Mm -hmm. Basically, can you take the carbon dioxide, the greenhouse gases, out of the air and stick them back in the earth, stick them in a rock or something like that, or a great big hole? Uh, the risks are relatively low. The bad thing is the cost for the scale that you need to do this at is still very, very high. Uh, nobody has thought 
a really good way to get around the second law of thermodynamics. That's kind of the fundamental thing there. The other thing is spring perfume. Uh, this is sometimes known as uh, albedo modification. Sometimes people call it solar radiation management. We don't think there's any management involved here. This is like pure dumb luck. Uh, but it kind of replicates what happens in a really big volcano. Uh, it absolutely will cool the earth but it will also change lots of other things in the climate that we don't really understand. So I tell people this does not make the climate go back to an earlier state. It goes sideways. Right. Uh, and there are lots and lots of other issues. So the Academy report assessed the risks are extremely high and frankly unknown to doing this. And our bottom line conclusion was the best way to, uh, uh, to, to, get a hold of this climate change issue is do what we know now. You have to adapt to what's coming and stop burning greenhouse gases. Over time, you got to get to there. Uh, but the hoping for a technological mm -hmm. silver bullet, uh, we can hope all we want. It's probably not going to work out that way, although people will try for sure. Right. I think that uh, I see, and again, the National Academy did a report on disaster resilience about five years ago, and they're repeating it right now uh, to look at what's happening. Uh, the idea is that uh, if you don't know what's ahead of you and don't think it through, then it's really going to slam you up the side of the head like a two-by-four, and it's going to shake you. If you can think it through and develop strategies to deal with it, even though they may be not as palatable as you'd like, you may get by and you may be able to adapt physically to the, the environment and you may be able to change the governance structure, you may be able to find other things that will make it easier. But very clearly, you have to admit that climate change is happening and you have to right. admit that there are things that are going on around you. You go to Annapolis and the, the Naval Academy floods and it's flooding more often. Okay. Admit that that's case. the case. The Navy is very smart. Uh, they, they figured that out. The, the, the Academy is working on plans to deal with that. The city of Annapolis is dealing with that. We've got to be real. And if it's not happening today, as Admiral Titley has said, it may be happening in five years or in, in that nuisance flood. What's a nuisance flood to you? City streets covered or some water in your basement may be the worst thing to somebody else who has one pair of shoes, your one pair gets wet, you've got 15 more, right. that's the only thing they have. And when you translate that to the, the developing world, that's a, a tragedy or crisis. So we've got to figure out what's happening, we've got to admit it, then we've got to come up with the strategies and help our friends do that. So if, if I could just for a second kind of talk about these climate projections, not in any gory detail, but I'm sure your, your listeners, I mean, they're interested in the intelligence community, and of course the intelligence community lives for projections. And we know how hard it is. You know, We know very, very smart men and women in the intel community working very hard, and it's hard to get it right. 20, 30 years, people say, look, you know, you're guessing. Uh, and, and I get it, and they're, it's about people. People are hard to forecast, and people who are trying to deceive you are harder right. to forecast still. The advantage the climate scientists have is it's just physics. It's literally just physics. And we are lucky in the sense that we actually understand the physics. And we've known them for about 150 years. So this is why when we talk about these projections of 30, 50, 60 years in the future, they're, you know, without slamming the intel community, they're pretty good. 
and they're pretty good because I don't have people that are trying to deceive me right. or are going to just do weird people things. It's just physics. So this is why the science community feels confident. And, you know, and if you're in the Intel, an Intel analyst, it's like, God, you guys are arrogant. I mean, you know, we know right. how hard it is to get 10 or 20 years. And, and, you know, you guys waltz in here and say 50, 60. You know, who the hell are you? Well, I mean, the Intel analyst with 97% certainty on anything would be yeah, just kind of doing it, dancing their like, way to the White the House. White wall, yeah. You know, white room with padded walls. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I get that. You mentioned one of my former lifetimes. I was deputy uh, chief of naval operations for information dominance, where we had the cryptologist and the Intel. So I've, I've, ha I've had the honor and opportunity to sort of work in both the science world and the intel world. And, and that's a fundamental difference that I think a lot of times sort of gets lost because, hey, your, your forecast, Jerry's forecast, my forecast, it's like, hey, it's a forecast. We're basing it on very different things than what the intel community has. And again, because it's a different problem, right. uh, it, that's why we really feel pretty confident that this is how the world's gonna change. But that's a great advantage. We kind of know. so. You know, let's use it. Right. And intelligence preparation of the battlefield, whether it's for short or long range planning, is always included uh, the weather and climate. You have to know what's going to happen, you have to get the right materials there. It's even more important now, and, and pushing it away is not good for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> we're, we're making a mistake. It, it will not make the problem go away. So I, I want to actually, I, there's a cool website, the EPA, it's on the EPA website for now. I would try to grab it as quickly as you possibly can. But if you want to know out there how this impacts you locally, the EPA has a cool website that lists climate change impacts by state. So you can actually find out where you live and see what is potentially going to happen to your neighborhood. Um, and I'll, I'll post this on the actual uh, blurb for this podcast, but you can also go to epa.gov slash climate dash impacts slash climate dash change dash impacts dash state, or just Google climate change impacts by state EPA. But it actually does go state by state, including the District of Columbia and the U.S. Virgin Islands and other places that tell you how your state may be affected in the future by climate change. We'd like to thank Audible for their continued support. You can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash spy. And don't forget to take our quick survey. Go to podcast.survey. Seriously, people, the faster we get enough replies, the faster I stop talking about this. Um, so I want to take the time to thank both of you, General Galloway, Admiral Titley, for taking the time to talk to us here today. Both are members of the advisory board of the Center for Climate and Security. That website also is an invaluable resource for finding out what's happening around the world uh, when it deals with climate change. It's exactly what we're talking about here. That's their focus. It's not. This is not the Sierra Club website. It's talking about climate change and national security and global security. So I, I urge you to take a look at that. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today on SpyCast. Thank, thanks so much. Vince. Thanks. Thank you. thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.